This is episode 204 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Prankster Alan Abel. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am so delighted to welcome several people to the show today. Today, we're going to be talking about Alan Abel, and I'm so grateful to my co-conspirator in the show, Bill Aho, for bringing uh, Alan to my attention. And sadly, Alan passed away in 2018, but we are really honored to have his daughter and wife with us today. So welcome, Jenny and Jean Abel. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So let me do an introduction. Jenny has written a really fantastic introduction, and it's a little long, but bear with me. I think it's worth getting some background on Alan. He was an iconic satirist who pulled pranks on the world stage. While he looked fairly ordinary on the exterior, behind those twinkling eyes and bushy eyebrows was the brain of an extraordinary comic. Although many people are unfamiliar with Alan's name, they might recognize his many hoaxes. Alan is best known for his over-the-top satire, fanciful campaigns, and live performance art, such as Citizens Against Breastfeeding, Omar's School for Beggars, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, Sina, which is one of my favorites, the International Sex Olympics, sneaking a fake official into the Super Bowl, staging a green card wedding for Idi Amin, organizing a mass fainting on the Donahue show, and dozens of others that made news headlines around the globe. In his book, Confessions of a Hoaxer, Alan compared what he did to a, quote, life game, an adventure in absurdity, an adult fairy tale in which he got people involved emotionally and intellectually. Everybody was a participant. The audience had to decide for itself what was going on or what was to be learned from the experience, unquote. A journalist of note described Allen as one of the great jesters of recent times with an irrepressible flair for comic improvisation. His hoaxes, like any genuine works of art, need no other justification than their existence. Allen was not a con artist, as he is sometimes erroneously labeled. He masterminded elaborately concocted stunts that pricked the pomposity of the media and tested people's gullibility. Alan's creative partner was his wife, Jean Abel, who's here, who's posed as a fictitious presidential candidate named Yetta Bronstein in the 1960s. Alan and Jean went on to make two movies together in the 1970s. A few decades later, their daughter, Jenny Abel, also here, 
and her husband, Jeff Hockett, chronicled the lives of the Abels as pranksters and parents in an award-winning documentary called Abel Raises Cain. And first of all, I have to say thank you so much for doing that movie. I really laughed out loud a bunch of times when I was watching it. It's really, really fun. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, we we are really blessed because we had excellent uh, subject matter and material to work with. Yeah, it was really fun. Okay, so here's my first question. Some hoaxers try to explain why they do what they do. I think in your uh, introduction there, you kind of allude to this issue about do you explain, do you not explain? And it seems as though for Alan, you know, he's potentially trying to reveal something bad or many hoaxers do or expose something that's hypocritical. A lot of times in the academic world, the, you know, when people write hoax academic papers, they're trying to make a point. But other people are just pranksters. And so how important was it to Alan to explain his hoaxes? Well, he didn't want to have to. He hoped that people would get it. At the same time, he kind of taunted people <laughs> to <laughs> believe everything he had to say. So he would um, invent preposterous ideas. It kind of stemmed, frankly, from one particular thing. The beginning of his hoaxing career was the Cinna campaign. And mm-hmm. he, was, he, he was at the time traveling, I think, in Texas or somewhere. And all of a sudden, traffic came to a stop in the middle of the highway because two cows were making love in on the highway. And uh, he found that people's reactions, as he could see them in their cars, were fascinating how people reacted in various ways. And it just triggered something in him to write a little piece, and he sent it to the Saturday Evening Post. He got back a letter saying, what a disgusting idea. And he thought, wow, I've got a tiger by the tail here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he had little, little leaflets printed up, and it was, you know, a, a notion that somehow this young man, G. Clifford Proudit, inherited $400,000 from his, his parents. What he had to do with it was clothe all naked animals. That was his goal. <laughs> and so one thing led to another. If you remember Buck Henry, who was a comedian himself and comic writer, uh-huh. he was a friend of Alan's. He'd already done some stunts with him. So he went on television and play the role of Chief Clifford Prout. And things just burgeoned after that. His mail at the time was, uh, a lot of it was people believing, and some people got the gag. Mm -hmm. So it was fascinating to see these various reactions to this idea that animals were naked. I was just going to say, though, at what point did Dad usually come out? I mean, there were some times where the, the, uh, the satire may have been obvious to you, and dad, but maybe not everybody else. So, I mean, wasn't it usually the reveal of the hoax where where dad kind of like laid it out, like, you know, what built up to it, what the impetus was for that particular prank and why they did it, how they did it. I mean, I think daddy did take joy in the, after the fact, the reveal at the end. Yes, in most cases in those times, uh, this would be back to the 1950s, early days, he would play it out as long as it would go. Mm. And ultimately, he would confess and, and get publicity again. Oh, he, he enjoyed 
as a game, as it were. And Cinna lasted for many years. Mm. So uh, it, it was probably the best and the, the most uh, notorious of his pranks. But there, there was also one last thing to add to that. The fact that you did try to explain some of the pranks or that daddy tried to explain some of the pranks and then people still, they either didn't get it or just couldn't wrap their head around it or understand why anyone in their right mind would do what the Ables did. A lot of people were dubious about him, yes. <laughs> but almost everything he did, he did with a dead pan. He played it straight and uh, never laughed. It all stemmed really from a very early thing he did when in college he was asked to welcome the incoming freshman in Ohio State where he was going to school. And he, he fell off the stage, not meaning to. Oh. But he got laughs because every time he felt his little bumps and, and, and bruises, people laughed. They thought he was pretending to be funny. So as someone who was standing in the back of that concert hall uh, asked him to do the same routine at, at his local Lions Club or something, and Alan thought, you know, I've got something here. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but he started to turn to comedy. He'd been a rather serious student. So uh, that kind of started his, his journey into comedy and trying to be funny. One of the problems was he, he had teeth that he always hated, and he never smiled. Oh. He never <laughs> smiled. So part, it was a good thing in that uh, for a period of time until he had them fixed years later, he never smiled. He was mm. always, you know, serious. His countenance was serious. But it all lent to the pain that he would do. And he he spoke to, you know, IBM, to all kinds of um, companies, and, and he spoke seriously. They, people who hired him, of course, knew that he was a con artist of sorts, you know. But he would have the audience going and believing, and he would always begin with some catastrophe. Mm. This thing or that thing is just about to happen to the company, and you better be braced, you know. And everybody would be serious until he little by little began to talk about Jack or Jock the Jumper, uh, who would jump off of a building, for, you know, I mean, you know, or would threaten to jump off the building. And he would get into kind of preposterous, you know, um, silly things that people eventually got the idea they were being had. Uh-huh. And, and, and then they laughed. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. After, they, after, after say, they were scared. <laughs> yeah, like there's nothing funny about somebody who wants to drop off a jump off a building, but I think part of that wasn't dad selling binoculars. Like he there was some like client. <laughs> oh who, yes, there was always you know. So he was basically creating a, a, a like a a need for binoculars, like a you know he he created a scene so that more binoculars could be sold for the client. So. I just wanted to also say that it's funny that my dad started his career unintentionally. So, I mean, I think that's part of the, 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 you know, the, enig the enigma mm -hmm. that is my dad, that he didn't go on stage, like, you know, doing a pratfall intentionally. It was the accidental fall. And then his, then getting laughs that made him realize the, the power of comedy. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things I so appreciated about the work as I've learned about it is there is an element of subtlety, right? And some of it is, 
as Jean was saying, you know, this sort of growing sensation that you're being had, right? And there's just something very human and interesting about that, but it's not straight up, straightforward comedy. You pay your ticket, you know what you're going to get. But it, you know, it's it's a much more delicate process that that you're getting involved in. I just think it's fascinating. I, I would say yes. I think someone um, described it as cerebral. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So Cena took place during the '50s. You know, definitely an era of of repression, and that one is really dear to my heart because I do find that there that free speech is always under attack, and I think. Uh, Alan at one point said, you know, if you're going to start censoring things, let's carry this a step further, right? So so a lot of his argument was made by doing that, right? By taking things a step further. And if you're going to really be worried about salacious things, oh, well, I guess we better put pants on animals. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that one in particular was especially enjoyable for me. And then one of the funniest parts of the movie was the rejection letter that he got from the Saturday Evening Post when he submitted his uh, article or editorial about it, where they said, no, you know, space is very limited in our serious magazine. We wouldn't have room for this. And then they say, Plus, the idea is preposterous. <laughs> Signed, editor in chief. <laughs> I think it was especially appealing to me, and maybe this is true for you all too, that he seemed to especially enjoy taking the Mickey out of serious people. Well, one thing that I was um, tending to remember from reading one of the books or articles is some people took it really seriously. And I believe a woman from Santa Barbara sent him a big check or something to help fund yeah. the, the campaign. I, mean, I know he gave it back and everything, but but it must have been really weird to see other people really believing it so intently. Yes. Um, hard to believe, frankly. <laughs> you have to question their uh, mental condition. But um, almost everything he did, it was for fun. He never, he never, I mean, outside of writing the books, of course, uh, about all of his experiences, he never took money. That was crossing a line he dare not do. He could feel the check for a few minutes, but he had to send it back, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was very, very straight and very honest and uh, forthcoming, and um, he, he was an easy person to know. Mm-hmm. He, he engaged uh, everybody and anybody who came near him. He had a, 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 a way of somehow approaching people on a subway car or on a sidewalk in New York and get them to do something and in one case, it was the Idi Amin um, uh, situation. Idi Amin had done awful things, I think, with Uganda, his country. Uh, and he was apparently exposed as having a plane sent to the United States to get his favorite foods. And this just irked a friend of Alan so much that he could do that, given the bad reputation he had in his own country. Mm-hmm. that he said, you've got to do something about this. So Alan happened to be on the subway one day um, thereafter, and um, he found this black fellow. So he agreed in the span of this short uh, subway ride to play this role. And so uh, another friend of Alan set them up at the at the plaza in New York, have him uh, marry uh, a Jewish-American princess. So here they are now in this they're going to get married at the plaza, and they invite all the reporters, and 
Along come some people from the government, too, because what's Idi Amin doing here? So all of a sudden, you know, they've got all this attention. And um, at the end of it, they actually confessed. But that's the only time I think they ever actually confessed the press. And it was quite a show. So they confessed on the spot. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, meanwhile... One of the members of our crew, and we have always friends playing various roles in these situations. And someone called Tiffany's and said that Yamin would like to come over there and, and buy a piece of jewelry for his bride-to-be. Uh-huh. And um, they closed the doors to the public so that he <laughs> gave it time. Meantime, in the store, I mean, he cautioned not to speak because, of course, he didn't have an accent. And right. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> but, Give it away. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh he was supposed to play it straight, which he did. And um but he picked up some jewelry and dropped some of the jewelry on the floor. And uh you, you know, when you think about it, Tiffany's is the idea of doing that is just do that. Did it. <laughs> right. All right. So Alan also took on politics by running for Congress with this hilarious platform that, again, made me just burst out laughing that included paying congressmen on commission, selling ambassadorships and uh, probably a few other things that were just a little bit too truthful. Oh, I think one was putting truth serum in the Senate. The fountain. Yes. (laughs) I just love that. But then... um, the the uh, person of Yetta Bronstein came about. So tell us about her. Yetta Bronstein, I think she I invented her back in the days when we were recording on uh, on our phone in our our little office, our little broom closet office uh, in New York. Um, I would I would play different characters. And um, we would record, you know, various messages about Cinna and how, you know, uh, how important it was for people to join and so forth. So anybody calling into our office would get all these different people, ultimately. Uh-huh. And one, one of them was Yetta Bronstein. Uh-huh. Uh, later on, Alan actually had, he had um, hosted uh, a radio show in the Playboy Club in Chicago. So I would call into that. There was also a call-in show. So she kind of matured over time. Mm. And it was uh, 1964, I think, finally, when uh, I ran for president. I know she kind of grew. I, you know, it's how these things go, like mushrooms. Like, there was no yet a Bronstein. There was no real person. It was just a voice. And uh, when suddenly we were, we were kind of assaulted with um, various publications and such, who wanted a picture, we had none. I was then, what, 27 or something, so I was far too young to even run for president, and I certainly didn't look the part that I portrayed. So Alan used his mother's picture, and I'm not even sure she knew about it, to tell you the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't ask. (laughs) But um, anyway, um, yes, I, I ran for president, and I also wrote a book about how I lost. Ah. I was going to ask, what did Yetta sound like? So, um, Yetta was kind of, I was young, so I didn't have a lot of, you know, range in my, my. so she kind of had an irritating voice. I hate to say it. I hate to listen <laughs> to myself. But anyway, she was very peppy like that. And she talked about her best party. 
Because, uh, you know, whatever she uh, she called it, it was going to be the best party, you know, and she encouraged everybody to vote to vote. And um, actually, I think I did get a few votes. But anyway, <laughs> I had a song, get Bronstein in, get Bronstein in, get Bronstein into the White House. She wants to run for number one in the capital of Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we actually came upon a collection of old audio cassettes. My dad loved to tape everything. And uh, we found a, the beginning of a record of Yetta Bronstein doing all Christmas songs. So she was this Jewish grandmother singing Christmas songs. We haven't really listened to it, but I think that might be a... There's there's probably some gold in all of this somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and one of my favorites is the tagline, right? Vote for Yetta, things will get better. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) Yes. They're timeless, aren't they? They, These these one-liners. I remember getting actually um, asked for pictures of the other candidates who were running during that period of years. I also ran in 68, I might add. Mm. And uh, I had, you know, personally autographed pictures, uh, I think of John Lindsay, all all wishing me well, Mm. (laughs) which I thought was very generous of them. But yeah, it was a fun period. We we enjoyed it very much. And Alan played my manager. One time he was we were invited to go to Johns Hopkins and yet it was supposed to be appearing there. They had been creating all sorts of floats and things. They were all excited. I think Eisenhower's brother um, was ahead of the college at the time. And uh, he was very worried that the boys were much too boisterous and they might make fun of me or something, you know. Well, I don't think he realized that it was all about fun in the first place. So anyway, Alan went and um, in my stead and took a recording of me. So I have no idea what I said on that anymore. We enjoyed it. You know, it was actually a fun thing that we did. I was wondering what these days, what Yetta would say about the state of politics in America and how could she help? You know, I think what this country needs is a mother. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right now, right now, I would say, for goodness sakes, make up your minds. You're making me crazy. (laughs) And I think, you know, they might listen to that. Everybody's got a mother, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you think about it. Maybe those guys who just can't seem to make up their minds might, might get to it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that would be that'd be a fun uh, project to pursue, but I don't know if you could at this point. No, I think they've all dug in, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, Alan did a lot of different hoaxes and stuff, but what was your, your favorite one that he's done? Well, I, I would say Sinna. Um, Probably mm-hmm. was a favorite. It lasted the longest. I think Yetta and Senna were my favorites, uh, but he he had some pretty preposterous ones. I was going to say those are the only two ho- hoaxes that you and Dad did together. Uh, that's true. That's true. And in some cases, in fact, he had other wives. Um, <laughs> there were people who... <laughs> There were people when I was busy. I mean, after all, when we got the great reviews from Is It Sex After Death, we made that Mm -hmm. movie in 72. You know, uh, we were so 
we were so um, high on the good reviews, we couldn't believe it. Mm. So we gave birth to a child. It came so easily then somehow. And so Jennifer is that person. So after that happened, I I was busy with raising a baby, mm-hmm. having an infant. And also I made, a, we made another film, The Faking of the President, which I made by editing and uh, itsy bitsy pieces of tape. Uh, and we had um, Nixon talking about Watergate and how he ran the getaway car and stuff like that. <laughs> so anyway, I had a child. So Alan would go out and pull off various stunts and he, he'd take along some friend's wife and uh, she would pose as, as Jean. I didn't care. It was okay. I was busy with my little baby and I was happy to do that. He needed my mom though, because even though she wasn't necessarily sharing the spotlight, she was always giving him ideas and making his costumes and you were his constant soundboard and inspiration. So just because you weren't, you know, getting hit with a pillow on the happiest married couple segment, you know, with feathers <laughs> flying true. everywhere That's with true. some other lady and not you doesn't mean that you weren't integral to every single one of daddy's she had She had the pillow hitting your father. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, the the one I was wondering about was when when he I don't know how else to say this when he faked his own death. I mean, there must have been uh, you must have had a role to play at that point. Well, you know, uh, Jennifer and I have a difference of opinion on this because I didn't think we were we had gone home to my parents in Cincinnati for the holidays for Christmas and. Um, Alan would always join us there, and then he'd end up leaving because he'd have something he had to get back to New York for. Mm. And I don't recall his telling me that he was going to pull this stunt. Oh, I see. Oh, dear. Jennifer thinks differently, or I forget. You you seem to think I did know, but... um, Yeah, because I think it would be immensely cruel for even, like you know, the world's famous hoaxer to hoax his own wife in that way. Like that would be terrible. Like if you just were absolutely clueless and and didn't know that he was going to do it, I think you repressed it because it was maybe like a little traumatic after the fact, because I went to school and everybody was feeling like sorrowful for me and asking me all kinds of questions. So it impacted us after the fact. So I, I think that daddy would, there's no way daddy would not have told you that he was going to do that. Well, I do remember that people were d- delivered flowers to the house and stuff like that. And one of his, his reporter friends, he had the uh, sympathy card ready to put into the mailbox and then pulled it out. I remember that, hearing about that. But some of the friends actually, they, uh, they were so angry they uh, never spoke to us again, which was interesting. Um, so what oh. What I, I'm i more hung up about is, well, if you love me so much, why not forgive me for this or something? You know, why, right. why, why did you cut me off? So it's sort of interesting how people react to something like that. I mean, I, it wasn't an issue of forgiving him or whatever. I, I just, It's kind of, you know, you, you get used to the unknown and the surprise every now and then. The kinds of things I remember most often are the everyday things that he did. He once passed by um, 
some sort of um, a sale in, in Ohio where they were selling this big roll top desk. And he left a written bid for it for $161. Well, the sale only brought 160. So a big roll top desk came to our apartment in New York with no space for it. So it's that kind of stuff that I kind of tend to remember (laughs) above all. Mm -hmm. And then there was the caboose that appeared. Mm -hmm, The caboose. That uh, he had, I think he'd given an an address. He he, he often spoke to various groups. It was like uh, Grand Trunk Railroad, I believe. And they were giving away cabooses at the time because I guess they were trying to just uh, get rid of them. And so in lieu of his payment for his speech, they gave him a caboose. (laughs) <laughs> so now we have the issue. It's coming down from Canada and it ran the line. Duluth, Winnipeg and Pacific ran the line along the border of the United States and Canada. Mm. And now to get this thing now, it came down to Norwalk. We were living in Westport at the time and it came down to a siding there and had to be gone by in 30 days. Now, uh, Jennifer was at that time about four, maybe four and um, of course, she was so cute, you know, as mm-hmm. children are at 44 and 44. Yeah, 44 and 40. Yeah, children are cute. So anyway, he claimed to the town board, you have to go, you know, very serious stuff. you got to mm-hmm. go to the, the people who plan and, and tell you yes or no to things. And um, that's a town where you can't let your grass grow in more than four inches. So you have to, you know, now figure out how you're going to handle this. So he posed it to the town board that it, it was a, a playhouse for Jennifer. Uh huh. So he took Jennifer down. Of course, she, you know, she was adorable and they all kind of melted, you know, and and uh, he, he had previously said to her, now, what happens if they don't let you have your playhouse? And she said, I'm going to cry. That's Jennifer talking. (laughs) And so he said, remember that. Of course, they said he couldn't have it down there in that meeting. And and so Jennifer started to cry. Hmm. Well, okay. They went to the sidelines and sort of talked it over a while and, and looked back at Jennifer and figured, oh, well. We'll give it to her. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you still had to pay for like moving and permits and stuff. Everything. Yes. And uh, then they had to go to the people who moved it. And uh, then she took her piggy bank because now it's a matter of money, you know. And uh, so, <laughs> and so I was going to be thousands of dollars, of course, to go the few miles from Norwalk train station to our home in, in Westport. And uh, we had prepared the Gandhi dancers had come and prepared a one length of rail. And it's like trap rock. And it has to be arranged a cer- certain way. And they actually did the, the thing they do in period, you know, they each alternate the uh, hand, um, hammering the spike into the, the rail. And uh, so that much was set up. Now it's a matter of uh, separating it from the, uh, the main part of it from the uh, chassis, I guess you call it. And uh, so it came down in two parts down Newtown Turnpike. It was uh, it, it was planted on our property, and there it was. But back to the uh, the deal with uh, the money part. Uh, Jennifer had brought her piggy bank along, and she emptied it on the desk. 
And they said, well, it would be like, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars or something. And But for you, Jennifer, you can have it for 200. I think it was something like that. Wow, big discount. <laughs> and, and we uh, invited them to the party because we had a party following the, uh, the planning of the caboose. And uh, a lot of folks came. We had a, a, a lot of interesting folks. Um, I, I, it was this guy who was the head of Saturday Evening Post and the guy of Screw Magazine and I know, an assortment <laughs> of people who all got together and had a good time. Yeah, it sounds like it. It does. I mean, mm-hmm. really, they all had a good time. So we had a dancing horse. We had all kinds of stuff. <laughs> It was memorable for sure. Now, what was your question? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm going to, my mom went off the rails there, but so now, guess what? I found something taped to my dad's computer, and this is like typical of my dad. So he really wanted a piano, and I just found the ad that my dad cut out of the classifieds, the upright antique piano. It, pick up in Shelton, Connecticut, excellent exterior needs tuning, only $50. Wow. And this same person is also offering 500 used red bricks for $50. So take <laughs> either away. So either take the bricks <laughs> or the piano. So my dad really wanted a piano. And the, the funny thing is my, my husband and my son and I, we, we got a pandemic piano. Uh-huh. So we have an old <laughs> antique piano, the one that my dad always wanted. You, you know, the movie has... Adam Abel raises Kane is so entertaining. I mean, it's one of the really hi- highlights of video viewing and one of my favorite movies. And and also the extras on that are really really fun. But um, are there any things that you've discovered since then that you wish you could have included in that? Well, you know, we didn't necessarily discover any archival material that we wished that we could have put in, but we did wonder why we didn't reach out to more people for interviews. Like my Mm. dad um, had a good relationship with Alan Combs, who would have been, I think, a good interview subject. And I know Buck Henry, I I think I actually asked Buck if he would do an interview with us. And he said, oh, well, I don't do interviews. And Mm. we kind of let it go. But it would have been nice to have Buck talking about my parents, working with my parents. But um. I, you know, I really can't think, Bill, we, I think we crammed as much as we could into that thing. Oh, no, you did. You did. But I didn't know <laughs> if, if maybe you, you came across them, you go, oh, of course, we're going to find that now. <laughs> yeah, like that was the most amazing thing that we felt at peace mm-hmm. with it, the way that it, it finally all came together. And, and we, we were so glad my dad would send me care packages every, I don't know, every couple of weeks or so when we started working Mm. on the on the documentary seriously and like he sent me a stack of those 45 records and it's like you know I didn't I've never even heard some of this stuff mm. so I felt feel like it it was almost like is it possible is kismet what is the <laughs> word where it was just it was so serendipitous like the process all kind of came together in a way and the fact that my mom and dad were able to enjoy their their rebirth you know and the timing was such that you know, my dad was well enough to travel. Like he would always surprise us at film festivals. We didn't know he was coming. And then all of a sudden there's a guy with a top hat and a tuxedo. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think that we don't actually have any regrets. If anything, I lament sometimes that social media wasn't more prevalent and more um, accessible because I think that we, 
we're too early for that boat. Mm-hmm. So that boat is already, you know, it was already, it hadn't sailed yet. It, it hadn't even been built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might, might add that he went as far as yellow knife, which is way on the Arctic circle. Yukon. Yukon. I mean, he went, <laughs> he went far and wide uh, to uh, go to the film festivals oh. And uh, it was so cold there, he, he couldn't even go across the street to a restaurant, I remember him telling me. But um, he was very happy about the uh, documentary. And we certainly appreciate Jennifer spending eight years of her life uh, working on it. And Jeff, who joined in later on, I think you kind of met through the, pro- I mean, your meeting was kind of, and dating was in that whole process too, right? Well, yeah, I had already Start of it, started the project, the research part part of it, and then shooting. I'd started shooting, but it was the editing and research, uh, all the archival stuff and putting it together, organizing it, and then taking little bits and pieces. That's where my husband, Jeff, was really, uh, without Jeff, there would be no documentary because he really helped me in that way to see it because it was hard to be objective. Mm. And, and I will just go back really quickly that Bill, my dad and mom, when they first watched the documentary, they were silent for like a few minutes. And then my dad produced a list of, of notes, like seven pages of notes of things <laughs> that he wished that we had included. So oh. I think at the time they didn't really know what to make of it. So I thank you for your kind words. Cause I think audiences really did find it very charming. Oh, they did. And funny. Yes, it, it uh, played all over the world, really, um, in that initial attention, because uh, they won it. A, a slam dance? Slam dance, yes. Mm-hmm. They actually won uh, the top award. And, uh, and, of course, that brings on other plays uh, elsewhere and all those other film festivals around them. They're, they seem to be everywhere, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and awards, too. We have some awards uh, it was it was a nice period of time. And of course, we attended some of those film festivals, which was also nice to do. But, you know, I wanted to say, Mom, that and I'm sorry, one last thing to interject that I think that for independent filmmakers, that the landscape is much different, that I don't think that we could have made this documentary and did what we did now, because mm-hmm. now everything's shot in like high res and has yeah. like aerial footage and fancy graphics. And we did everything in our apartment mm-hmm. on Final Cut Pro and After Effects. So the playing field has changed. And I think, again, like we hit like, you know, the timing was such that we missed one boat, but we kind of mm-hmm. got on the other boat, like the do it yourself filmmaking boat we were sailing on. Mm-hmm. I don't know about this analogy. I'm kind of maybe overusing it a bit. No, no, it's great. No, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah, I think there's, it's very clearly, though, such a great tribute. One of the things I was thinking about was people having a bad reaction to having been gotten, right? Like the people who were so angry about the hoax about his death. And in the movie, there's a reporter who was originally fooled. He was initially fooled. And it's a really interesting interview. You get the feeling he's a pretty thoughtful guy. And he talks about, yeah, you know, that this thing happened and he bought it. He said hook, line, and sinker. 
And then it seems like he, he started sort of studying what Alan did and thinking about, you know, what, what's, what's happening here with the media and um, kind of poking fun at the media or, or beating the media at their own game, you know, like realizing that you can catch them out because they're so vulnerable. Yeah. I, I think the whole thing just from a human standpoint is really interesting there's that moment in the film that I think is really good. And then there's another moment where there are a bunch of protesters on the street protesting against breastfeeding, how terrible breastfeeding is and all these psychological things that are wrong with breastfeeding. And there's a little clip of a woman who has been watching this going on. And then she turns and makes eye contact with the person running the camera and gives a little like, like nod, like, Oh, I see now. It's just such a such a cool moment, right? To have that connection of, oh, I, I see what you guys are doing here. I, I just think it's really, it's really neat. You are so funny. You just gave me goosebumps. You know, I think you picked up on a subtlety that like no one has ever brought <laughs> up in an interview or in any context. So that's that's really funny that you that you got that. And I think that's where my dad's art mm -hmm. it, it and my mom's art it's that's part of the experience the people who get it but they don't give it away mm -hmm. it, it seems like you might have had people in some of the some of the hoaxes on both sides as you know friends so you could you could play off each other is that would that be true or i mean like like, like with the breastfeeding if if you had the people that were against it but maybe a few that were i mean in both parties that were kind of able yes. to Work yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we would do that as well. Yes. Yeah, but that particular prank that the DNC, those haters were all real. Yeah. We didn't yeah. have any, um, there were no like fake haters. Those are actually like really agile. Is that what you mean, Bill? Yeah, that, like maybe right. we planted? Planted somebody in there just to, just to ask the right questions to get the response you're looking for. Yes, it, it, you know, there were times when, when uh, Alan, this goes way back now, he had some record. Well, it was about Senna, actually, if I recall. And uh, he banned it in Boston, figuring it would get him a lot of attention. Well, he was successful in banning it. Rat. So, yes, sometimes he, uh, he, uh, he made a mistake of sorts. Yes, yes. But yes, yeah, just to get some controversy, of course. And I'm sure it's being done today. You know, Probably if you right, really yeah. get to know what's going on, really. You know, the parents of, uh, going after other parents uh, coming away from school, I think, yesterday mm -hmm. I saw on the news. And they're being berated and charged with being, um, you know, bad parents and stuff. You think, wait a minute. Where are they coming from? Mm. Does every community have some of these folks or are they coming from somewhere? You know, mm. what, what? You don't yeah. really know. You don't really know. I think that's true. I think that does happen a lot. I think there's a lot of management of this kind of thing. Yes. Well, I mean, back in Nixon's era, 
he planted all kinds of protesters at his events. So yeah, yeah it was it was uh, commonly done back then. I'm not sure we knew everything there was to know about that period. Yeah, right. It's always interesting to live long enough to have more things come out. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one good thing about growing older. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I yes, you reminded me that at my parents' uh opening in New York it was is there sex after death you had it protesters was, yes it was sex after death. we well we had everything I'm sure uh, because we were just an independent little movie uh, we made this movie with I think eighty five thousand dollars which is hard to imagine nobody believes it and we had like a hundred thousand I believe is our that was what we had to make it with and um, and the guy who backed us, owned the uh, the horse that won the triple crown. I remember that. I forget his whole wolf was his name. Louis Wolf. He didn't want anybody to know he would backed our film, which was oh. just just fine with us. He didn't interfere. Mm-hmm. We had all the control and uh, we were very happy. During the, yes, at the point now of opening it, yes, we had pretend um, celebrities, people who were lookalikes, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they would get out of their limousine and go up the uh, red carpet and so forth. And there'd be someone interviewing them. They go out to the theater and go around and get back in the car. And, and, you know, they, they make around, they keep coming back. <laughs> you know, this, this is the kind of thing, of course, he staged. Some of his earlier pranks with staging things in windows in, in uh, New York, mm-hmm. he had the, uh, the drummer who was the, um, I don't know, he was supposed to be the, the longest playing drummer or something like that. It was some title. And he couldn't stop playing. Going to the bathroom, he had to play. Everywhere he had to play. While he's eating, he had to play. So this was, uh, you know, it got on a Bob and Ray, I think, their radio show at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they were part of this as well. And um, so he was always thinking in terms of PR. So that's how his head worked. Granted, now and then I did participate and I'm, I'm culpable to some degree on some of these things. <laughs> uh, I, I was, you know, like the closet thinker, you know, I never really took a lot of credit for all the stuff. I was going to say it was a stamp out smut, S-O-S. Uh, Those mm. are the ladies who are protesting the international sex ball. Oh, the international <laughs> sex ball. Yes. Well, that even brought, uh, I don't know, the uh, attorney general, was it? Um oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, he was in hot water in a lot of situations. And he would take um, some sort of like a, pla- a bag, a uh, shopping bag or something. And he would actually put a roll of, of gift wrap or something. And he would dress kind of oddly. So he looked like Mr. Everybody. And and he was actually recording the, uh, the situation. So here he is, you know, on an important meeting of... of he was being now challenged, like, what's he doing? And, you know, the, the attorney general was really putting it to him, putting the screws to him, you know. But he, Alan's happily, you know, recording all this conversation. And uh, I don't know what flim flam he was giving at the time because I wasn't there. <laughs> but he he managed to, to slip away and, and somehow never, never uh, ser- served time in jail for all this stuff, which is remarkable when I think about it. Uh, like the Phil, the Phil Donahue event was mm-hmm. um, when Phil was in uh, trying to think of the name of the town above Cincinnati. We would he had a little radio show, and we would he would invite us up at, at Christmas time. We'd always go home to visit the families, 
And um, we'd always go and, and, you know, give him entertainment. And uh, I think I had Yetta going at the time and so forth. And so when he suddenly had a TV show and Alan had a book coming out, uh, Alan's publisher called Phil's uh, people and said, you know, could he, could you uh, have Alan on the show to promote his book? And, and Phil supposedly said, well, we've done Abel before. Ah, you know, to someone who is a friend of a friend, you know, you don't do that to them. It's, it's, you know, you need the publicity and if they're a friend, they give it to you, you know, it's not a big deal. So then all of a sudden uh, Phil comes to New York and there's a big, you know, announcement that uh, Phil Donahue's show is, is coming. And um, meantime, his producer, whom Alan had kept friends with over the years, sent Alan 10 tickets and hope, said something in effect to hope you can, you, you know, you, you enjoy the show or something. Karma. <laughs> so Alan, to Alan, that was an invitation. It was unspoken. Can you do something? <laughs> So Alan created this, uh, what was the name of uh, the outfit he supposedly was representing? I forget. It was called Faint. Faint. It was called Faint. Okay. <laughs> Fight against idiotic, neurotic television. Okay. Yes. Right. So every time, I don't know if he would call the show, but he would go into the audience with his microphone and put it under people's noses and ask them questions and, or they would respond in some way and, or I don't know. Anyway, uh, every time he put the phone, the microphone under someone, and they were all sitting on the aisle, I might add, Alan's friends and uh, compatriots and all this would faint. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, like they were dropping like flies. And I think there were even some people who were fainting who weren't with us. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, Phil's trying to, you know, he's, he's obviously sweating and he's obviously upset. This is like his first show, I believe. Mm. So he's making excuses like, well, it's too hot in here and there's this and that. People come in from the cold and maybe they're just not used to being on television. And, you know, he was fine. And ultimately, he let the audience go. The audience now go back to the stage or just the people on the stage. And I think they were talking about coming out at age 80 or something. You know, it's kind of a subject of that sort. So the, the show ended and it got fantastic publicity <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you recall and uh then he found out that alan had something to do with it and he was angry i'm not sure if he ever ever forgave us or not mm. but his his uh, producer always kept in touch always sent christmas cards and we always asked how he was and he'd ask how we were and everything was fine we never talked about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah well, it that thing happened okay on to the yeah, next. yeah. Uh, there was some other uh, big host who said i wish you'd done it to me uh, i know morton downey jr also had a lot of um play with with uh alan for a while uh yeah yeah but he was actually they were not friends it was a real enemy situation <laughs> yeah i think so oh really well, look, you know, oddly enough, Bill Boggs, who was, I think, the producer of that show at the time, I mean, it was a kind of hate TV show, you know, it right, was like right. the Springer show. It was everybody was supposed to get full of hate and be upset. And, you know, that was the idea of the show. Oh. I never thought it was the best days of TV ever. Were there, was there anything in the works when Alan passed? I mean, did he have 
anything he was hoping to try to get to at some point? Uh, there was, yes. Will you be my baby daddy? He uh, ran into somebody on the train who he kind of got together with. And the idea was a woman wants to have a baby. And it's kind of like the Bachelor the Bachelorette kind of show. And these various guys compete for the person for the right to be the baby's daddy. And then he leaves. And well, we don't we don't know what goes on afterwards. <laughs> we don't it was a reality TV a re- show. A reality TV show. But but that wasn't the big thing. There, there was actually something well, going there's on. Also, uh, band board, uh, bird porn, another one. <laughs> well, no, Daddy did ban bird porn. <laughs> <laughs> right, who could say that? Ban bird porn. That's where and... you can find it now. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I looked it up. There is a site like that. There is actually like yeah. a problem. People have like a like a perverted tendency well, the idea being oh that you God. know people people watching birds and there are people who are bird watchers and they're, mm. they're with binoculars are disturbing their habitat and you know who wants to be watched when you're uh, <laughs> you know intimate as it were but i was gonna say mommy yes <laughs> um that the possibility of my mom and dad's life story on the theatrical stage was something that we were in the middle of negotiating back and forth, but it didn't end up happening. But that was something like before my dad died that he was reviewing the contract. There was talk of Broadway play or musical. Musical? (laughs) Yes. Uh, And we talked about that for a while and then it went dead. But something else came along, which we can't talk about. Oh, hopefully something else happened in the future then. In the nature of film. Yeah, for sure. There's there's a writer who is uh, very very fascinated by the Abels. Hmm. I can so I'm, stay tuned. I, all right, I'm imagining how fun it would be to put some of those pranks into a song. Right. Oh. I, I, I really can't imagine how fun it would be. You know, his, his turn of phrase was was so amusing. I can imagine them becoming a really, really funny lyric. Well, you know, uh, my mom is a songwriter too. Ah. And she wrote a song that is kind of like uh, an ode to the Abels when they were on the road and had nothing but Mm. a pot to piss in. (laughs) Ain't got no pot to piss in. It's a good life I've been missing. Don't get no loving, no kissing when you got no pot to pissing. Wow. How does that strike you? Yeah, good. I like that's, it. That's good. <laughs> that that's, has to be one of the songs in the in the in the soundtrack of the uh musical. Bill, you're gonna bring it to life. Yeah, we had a we had a movie in mind when we were in a it, it was too late in our lives to do it, but um, it, it was um, it, it was something we had in mind to do. Yeah, we didn't get to do, but it was called Plots. Yeah, Plots, P-L-O-T-Z. Oh. And um, yeah, I was we were kind of hoping that Jennifer and Jeff might take it on. But Listen, do you know how much stuff my mom and dad have and how many boxes of ideas like I'm gonna be an old lady by the time I even get through like one, one room. tiny fraction of it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah. the, ar the Able Archives sounds like a fun place to go. You can come over anytime you want, though. <laughs> <laughs> if I was closer, I'd take you up on that because I think. Yeah, I know a, you would. That'd be a real, real joy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really have enjoyed uh, talking with you and reminiscing about a different time period for sure. And before I let you go, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share with the audience really anything you'd like to talk about, refer them to the film or website or really anything you'd, you'd like for them to know. Hang on. Sorry. That's so weird that that rings. Okay. Can I tell you what's really weird, everybody? Yes. That phone, this phone is not even plugged in and it rang. Wow. Electricity going to it. Oh my gosh. We, we have been having some <laughs> ghost. That is really weird. Okay. We have been having some ghostly experiences in what, this house. What was the question you just asked? Yeah. And don't you think that would be a perfect time for Alan Abel, the ghost, to call on the phone that's not I even know. plugged in? We right. had experiences, I'm telling you, and we're sitting at his desk right now. He may very well be listening in. Okay, that was really weird. Sorry, <laughs> I just shouted into the microphone again. I'm so, thinking of um, 700 books we bought of his so they wouldn't be going into uh, a dumpster. A dumpster, How to Thrive on Rejection. And how much are they going for? Ten dollars. Ten dollars. I so, have one. They're uh, great. Th thank you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> they're autographed by Alan Abel. They're good, like toilet reading. <laughs> <laughs> Way to sell it. Way to sell it. No, but I think honestly, the the intent for me um, to put the documentary up on Vimeo mm -hmm. is for people to view it for free, not have to worry about a paywall, just enjoy the able story. So if, if people go to our website, either alanable.com or ablerazescane.com, they lead to the same place. And I can also give you a direct link to the Vimeo, the movie that's on Vimeo. Maybe that might be good too. Well, great. Well, thank you again so much. It was lovely to talk to you. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much, Mom. Thank you as well. And, and Bill, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about the man. Oh, well, nice talking to you also, both of you. I mean, it's great to hear the insider um, perspective of things because you guys were there, so... Yeah, and you know what? This is your own personal DVD commentary. You get to ask whatever question <laughs> you fancy. Uh, man, there's there's still more questions I could easily ask, but I know we're out of time. But man, I hope someday all the um, archives will become public somewhere, or the all the tapes of radio shows and all that kind of stuff. This sounds really fun. That's what we're we're gonna do. We're we just have to open one of a thousand boxes and get started. <laughs> I'm on my way. Bill, you're welcome anytime. I really mean that. <laughs> Just let us know. Give us a week notice. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. 
and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>